Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Before I talk about digitalization, I just want to say I'm also a pathologic optimist. It is my fundamental belief that on the, on the long run, of course, you need some kind of business model because a business model delivers a value add. And when there is a value add, you have the money to reinvent. Whoa, what's up, fraudstands? <laughs> Welcome to Fraudsters. I can't stop laughing about that opening clip, man. I'm Cena Gazzavi, at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here. You can find him on Facebook, and also check out his website, justinwilliamscomedy.com. Uh, you know, Justin, I mean, how are you? How's everything going? I'm good. Some people think that I'm a bit of a sociopath. But I find that there is value. <laughs> I like the Austrian tease there for the episode. Uh, and always, I got to make sure to plug our community number, 412-285-1255. Come hit us up on community. Send us tips. Talk to us. Justin and I and Hazel will all be on there now. It is going to be a great place for us all to hang out. And, of course, we had a happy hour last week. We're going to have a happy hour again next month. So, Stay tuned. That's the only place we will get access to the happy hour. Justin, do you know why I'm excited about today's episode? No, Cena. Tell me why you're excited about today's episode. Because I got to listen to Kraftwerk while I did all the work on this episode, and it was so much fun. The German electronic music band? The pride of Germany, Justin. The pride of Germany. Wait, were they fraudsters? No, no, that's not. It just depends on what you think about electronic music and should we even like it or not. But our fraudster today was part of that German pride. Wirecard was one of the most successful companies in German history. It was among the top 30 companies in Germany listed on the equivalent of the Dow Jones Industrial called the DAX. It was rated 92 out of 100 in innovation by Forbes in 2017, had a market cap, so this is the size of the company, of over $24 billion, had over 5,000 employees, and was one of the darlings of German fintech. Germany's company to compete on a global level with PayPal and other huge technology companies. And their CEO... Dr. Marcus Braun was a charismatic douchebag that was a former consultant that ended up being a complete fraud. But let's find out more about Dr. Marcus Braun. He's a former KPMG consultant. That's like a big consultant company that came into Wirecard in 2002. In 2005, Wirecard merged with a defunct call center group that was publicly traded, which allowed for them to bypass all the scrutiny of going public. Remember back at Barry Minkow, they actually did the same move where the mob had a company that was like a shell company in Utah that they invented, that they used to absorb Barry Minkow's carpet cleaning company and inflate that price. Now, that was the very insidious way to do this. Wirecard, at least initially, just wanted to be a publicly traded company, and this is a totally legal way to do it. Problem is, none of the way they were doing business was... Real. Yeah, speaking of absorbent, please shop at my online store for Justin ZZ Best Carpet Cleaning Company. Justin Williams <laughs> ZZ Best Carpet Company. The most absorbent products on the market. But Cena, you, know, you got to tell me, though, what does Wirecard do exactly? Okay, so Wirecard is a payment processor. So they're like PayPal, like I mentioned, or Square, uh, and they act as an intermediary between you and the banks. Let's say you're a merchant and I'd like to buy something online from you. I use Wirecard to process the transaction. I put my credit card, beep, boop, beep, 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 
all that info information online. That goes to Wirecard. It's going securely. Wirecard then talks to Visa or MasterCard or Amex, whoever my credit card company is, to ensure that I have credit. And then they get the money from the credit issuer. Let's just say it's Visa. And then they send that to you. So my money comes from Visa, goes to you via Wirecard. That's it. That's the whole business. They're just a middleman. All right, I want to give a big shout out to PayPal because if you don't have any money and you're a day away from direct deposit, you can still order that takeout. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's called PayPal kiting. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and listen, Wirecard was pretty good at this for a while. They said they had the best technology to do this and, and put a pin in the word technology because they love saying the word technology. <laughs> they, they were expanding globally. In fact... Here's the cultural element here. They always talked about a cashless society, and this is a big deal. So think about that for a second. You're a payment processor that uses zero cash, right? You're just moving ones and zeros around the World Wide Web in these different places, and they end up as numbers in people's bank accounts. So there's probably a lot of people, they see this trend, investors even, that ascribe to this vision of the future that we won't use dollars or coins or any sort of paper money anymore. And it's not actually that too far-fetched. And people can rally behind that vision. And you don't rally behind a company, right? You rally behind a person and that person's vision. Braun's vision was a cashless society. Yeah, what was really crazy was that he hired the Wu-Tang Clan to re-record their classic song, uh, Eye Cream, Invisible Cash Rules Everything Around Me. That came out this <laughs> couple years ago. <laughs> Wirecard operated this payment business in three places mainly. Dublin, Germany, and Dubai. They had licenses to operate in these places, and it even owned its own bank. Yo, they had their own bank. I don't understand. That, that to me is, is it just that easy to have your own bank? Can, can we just make a fraudster's bank, Justin, you think? We should. We should start fraudster's federal savings. Like, you can trust, <laughs> trust fraudster's federal savings. What if we became the most trusted bank in the world? That it's I think like, it'd be The good. whole thing's a satire. I think we could do this. When it comes to banking, we all want the same thing. Trust, reliability, consistency. We want to be treated like family. And at Fraudsters Financial Savings Bank, we treat our clients just like family. Family we habitually steal spare cash from at holiday parties. Open a bank account now by sending $1,000 through the cash app to $FFSB Very Real Bank. Consistently, reliably, if you bring your money to Fraudster's Financial Savings Bank, you can trust that we'll keep it. But listen, so Wirecard had to keep expanding because of the payment processor. The only way you expand is if you get more merchants and you make your tent bigger. But if you want to go global, you have to get licenses to operate in those places. You can't just walk in there and say, we're a payment processor. The countries have to trust you. So instead of having licenses in these other countries that they wanted to operate in, they engaged these third-party payment processors and had them do the exact same thing and then pay Wirecard a commission since Wirecard brought the transaction to them. All right, so what the fuck does that all mean? Let's say, again, I'm trying to buy something from you, Justin, but you're in the Philippines. Wirecard doesn't operate there. Wirecard goes to Hazel, who is a payment processor in the Philippines, and says, hey, I've got this transaction. Can you process it? Sure, she would say. And then since Wirecard brought her the transaction, my business, then she would pay Wirecard a little something to wet his beak. Okay, but dig this. In 2008, the head of the German Shareholder Association publishes an attack on Wirecard. They say that this whole company is kind of full of it. 
This is in 2008 right now. Everything should be running normally at Wirecard. Everyone thinks it's just a boring payment processor. So when they did this, auditors were called in to make sure that the books at Wirecard were legit. And they had to call in an auditor that was trustworthy, that was beyond reproach, that has had a history of standing up for both the rule of law and proper accounting principles. Ernst and Young. <laughs> if you don't remember Ernst and Young, Ernst and Young was actually the same company that helped Barry Minkow's company go public years ago in the 80s. At that time, though, it was called Ernst and Winnie. I can't believe these people keep getting invited back. This is like when you have a, a really drunk friend and then like, they, you know, they puke in your bedroom. You know, and and like the, you have a party the next weekend and you're like, ah, man, I guess we'll invite Ted back. I mean, he was he was pretty cool up until the puking in the bed and ruining my mattress. But uh, yeah, I think he's I think he's a good guy. Yeah. You know, like Rick James was like that, too. Like he gets invited <laughs> to all the parties, but like a lot of them didn't end well. <laughs> but you can't say no to Rick James. No, yeah, Who's, who doesn't who doesn't want Rick James at their party? Ernst and Young is the Rick James of auditors. Okay, we've settled it now. <laughs> but when Ernst and Young gets called in, what do you know? They turn up absolutely nothing. And they say wire cards doing everything fine. In fact, the German government put the two guys up on charges and they got prosecuted for putting out this report. But it wasn't for the report itself. It was because they put out this report without disclosing that they had short positions against Wirecard. So that means, yes, they had actually uncovered problems very early on at Wirecard, and then they made a bet on it. But when they put out the report, they were supposed to tell everyone. They actually put their money where their mouth was, except you're supposed to tell everyone how much money you have in your mouth at the time. Like little Yachty. <laughs> little Yachty... Puts his money where his mouth is. Yada, 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 yada. Sorry. <clears throat> Just a few years later, Wirecard raises 500 million euros and goes shopping. They buy up these third-party processors now in other countries. Those third parties were in Dubai, the Philippines, which the one in the Philippines in particular actually shared an office with a bus company. <laughs> and there was another one in Singapore. So imagine you're a payment processor. This was not like, you know, a couple hundred transactions coming through. We're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars of transactions were being shown to come from this payment processor that shared an office with a bus company. Again, all they're doing is processing payments. I've taken a couple of Chinatown buses from Boston to New York where I'm sure that payments were being processed like it was a mobile office i don't think it was just a bus that's what i'm saying yeah well, you get a mobile command center you don't need much i mean maybe i'm, I'm underselling this this bus station or this bus company but <laughs> again even at this time they're just payment processors this is legal it's all sounds simple enough but here's the problem again nothing illegal about buying third-party payment processors collecting a commission you know and operating in this kind of proxy way where someone else is handling the, the processing, right, in foreign countries. The problem is none of the transactions that Wirecard said were going through these companies ever existed. Wirecard told their auditors that millions of dollars of transactions were coming through these third-party processors and that Wirecard was making shit tons of money, upwards of 2 billion euros. Too bad this was an app. Absolute lie. Wirecard, you said that you are the father of billions of dollars of euros <laughs> of transaction. The lie detector test indicates that was a lie. You, you are, are not, not the processor. <laughs> oh! <laughs> and in 2017, though, Wirecard gets a clean audit. How? Well, they just told Ernst & Young that the third-party processors were making tons of money for Wirecard. So Ernst Young is like, all right, well, we should do our job a little bit here. Can you just show us where the cash is? You know, it's not in your bank. And when I say your bank, I mean literally your wire card bank. You have your own bank. 
Why is the money that you're making not going in your own bank? And Wirecard's like, nah, man, it's these escrow accounts. All this money is there. Ernst Young simply is like, okay, cool. Boom. No problem. Investors go nuts. Ernst Young gives Wirecard a clean audit, and the German people love this company. They are proud of this company. All of a sudden, people are pouring money into Wirecard. So much so that pensioners and retirement accounts, all these different kinds of funds from normal people, normal German folks, started flooding into Wirecard. And by September 2018, it's in the German equivalent of the Dow Jones called the DAX. It's the biggest fintech company in Europe, and it is the jewel of Germany. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, it wasn't for lack of trying. The Financial Times actually had been doing stories that were suspicious of Wirecard since 2015. And they were met with aggressive lawyers. Even they, the Financial Times thought they were being followed. It was a maddening experience. We have a little clip from Dan McCrum, who was the Financial Times journalist that really was focusing on this case for several years. I mean, to begin with, it was hard to believe. You have a sense of the Financial Times as a reputed organization, and you're very publicly being called a criminal. I was sort of used to it when the company had done it, because the company had done it for years. But when you suddenly find yourself facing an actual criminal investigation in Germany, with regulators where the company which you're writing about seems to have certainly the ear of these people, um, that was, there were some moments where that was quite stressful you do at times start to think that you're going a little bit mad because um, obviously you become paranoid if you constantly think your emails are going to be hacked or if you think people are following you. There was a period where I started to uh, double back when I was going to meet people or you would get on a tube carriage and jump off again, which seems ridiculous. And it seemed ridiculous at the time we were very conscious that there was active surveillance going on. So you start to doubt yourself and when you try and explain this to anyone as well like yes i'm trying to report on a company and all this crazy stuff is happening even now i think about it it sounds ridiculous like some sort of film yo these were nerdy payment processors that were sending investigators out to hunt a nerdy financial times journalist this nerd on nerd crime has to stop the venmo secret police is one of the most feared (laughs) intelligence organizations (laughs) Yo, the stories kept coming after this. Slowly and steadily, the Financial Times did not quit. The pressure kept mounting. And Dr. Braun is acting like nothing's the problem. And I want to play a few clips of Dr. Braun because he's the fraudster here. And we have to remember the person is always responsible for these things, not just some faceless company. Dr. Braun is this former consultant guy who thinks he's always the smartest guy in the room and knows how to use language in a really interesting way. And when I mean interesting, I mean full of shit. So let's listen to a quick clip of him talking about the next wave of technology. The next big phase is definitely about algorithms and let's call it artificial intelligence. I don't like... Oh, let's call it that. The term artificial intelligence, at at the end of the day, what we really can do today... Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Is better described in terms of machine learning. Ooh, naturally. So we are not able, and I hope we never will be able, to substitute a human being in terms of its holistic, moralic decision-making process. Oh, moralic. That's not the goal. It's at the end of the day about new ways of dynamic statistics, mathematics, that really optimize, to some extent, the way data is understood. Give it up for Christoph Waltz, everybody. (laughs) 
It's <laughs> fucking. Yo, we should write the movie just so we could cast Christoph Waltz to do this. This is this guy is amazing. He's just keeps saying he said every buzzword you could have imagined in just that small clip: artificial intelligence, machine learning, algorithms, technology, uh, probabilities, data, mathematics. Come on now, you gotta be kidding me. Now, what I want to do is I want to provide a synergy. But not so much of a cancel culture, but more of, I'd say, a people of color feminism. But not having to do with race or gender. I'd say more of a humanism that is also a machinist outlook. I want to create a thin blue line of anti-racist policies that are empathetic and socially conscious, <laughs> but also driven by data and results. <laughs> See, if we create diversity within a white supremacist framework, then I believe. <laughs> we always end there, don't we? We always get there eventually. So this guy, Dr. Braun, is doing these speeches, by the way, with a black fucking turtleneck on. I don't understand. It's gonna. We're going to cover Elizabeth Holmes at some point. But, I mean, the people that are just trying to fanboy Steve Jobs is incredible. And there's another little piece about this guy. He's constantly checking the share price of Wirecard. He's also a guy that bought shares back of Wirecard to also help inflate the stock price. And about a certain point, he owned 7% of the company, which made him a billionaire, which made him very, very wealthy. Too bad. It's all gone. Here's a quick clip from Bloomberg, and there's a little bit of chatter in the background because, I don't know, they were at some sort of expo or whatever, but there's a really interesting clip of him trying to you know, respond to the controversies that his company is completely fake. Let me ask about the the, the scandals uh, that we've seen in the stock market. I mean, it's interesting because on the one hand, you have 23 buy ratings from analysts out of the 29 that I, that I counted on the Bloomberg today. On the other hand, there seems to be a nonstop controversy coming from the Financial Times, SIRF, and a number of other places that create the kind of volatility I don't think German investors are, are used to. Why is that there's so much controversy surrounding your company? Let me first say, since going public in 2005, I think we delivered uh, an average share price growth every year of 36%. So I think we have been very successful also in share price development terms. I think we have a tremendous growth development before us. Uh, we have big innovations before us. So this is what we concentrate on. Uh, I do not too much look into controversies, but my message is I think we're we have a very strong year before us. Uh, we are concentrated on technology innovations. The whole digital payment area is still early stage. So, of course, in many areas, we are, we are pioneers. No, I just like it that Bloomberg is doing interviews in a high school cafeteria. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So... Isn't it amazing, though, that at the time of this interview, uh, this was like close to the end, I think late in 2019, 23 out of the 29 analysts that looked at Wirecard, and when they say that it's a buy rating, that means someone sits at their desk one Monday morning, spends however much time on this stock, and analyzes the numbers, analyzes their balance sheet, analyzes the investment profile, all these different weird things. How are the, what's the history? How is it going to trade? What's the demand? What's the supply? And because Wirecard was just blatantly lying about these things, it was easy for a, an analyst to be like, oh, wow, well, they got all this money coming in from Asia. It wasn't until other people like the Financial Times were like, the money from Asia is fake. <laughs> Did things start to change? Eventually, everything starts to fall apart. A special audit is ordered not by Ernst & Young, which, by the way, at this point, they are the fraud drug dealers of capitalism. KPMG comes in and is hired. And, of course, they're like, well, show us the cash. They called some people. They called Hazel at the Philippines. And Hazel's like, uh, yeah, business is great. Like, uh, what's going on? And KPMG's like, hey, can you just send us, like, you know, a statement of the hundreds of millions of dollars that are flowing from your merchant account. And Hazel from the Philippines is like, hey, gotta go. 
gotta go. I um, I have something to do in the Philippines. They <laughs> <laughs> just left. If you, if you hold for just a second, I'm going to connect you with our chief financial officer, Mr. Manny Pacquiao. <laughs> KPMG says they can't find the money. And all of a sudden, after they say that, Ernst & Young is like, oh, yeah, we can't find this money either. I can't believe this money's gone. On June 18th, 2020, Wirecard announces that they are missing 1.9 billion euros. That's around 2.1 billion dollars. That happens. Yeah, I, I've misplaced a billion euros in my time. You know, wrong, wrong pair of jeans. I found two mil in my couch last week. I mean, I tell you, it was it was wild. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the management board of Wirecard AG, I would like to provide the following statement. We have been informed by our auditor EY in Germany that an audit opinion for the annual financial statements for the fiscal year 2019 requires further audit procedures due to spurious bank confirmations. According to EY, there are indications that the auditors have been presented with incorrect balance confirmations for fraudulent purposes by a trustee or from the area of these banks. At present, it cannot be ruled out that Wirecard AG has become the aggrieved party in a case of fraud of considerable proportions. Thank you. So it turns out that all that money that they said was in there, that they said was like all this, you know, revenue that they had generated from Asia, the, the, the very thing the guy from Bloomberg asked about, nothing was there. And they are supposedly keeping it in this escrow account, which is just like an intermediary to hold money. Nothing was there. Now, to talk about this a little bit more and kind of build the world out of what was happening here, I want to bring in a New York Times reporter that reported on the case after it blew up. So they really got to see it all unravel right in front of them. Christopher Schutze is a New York Times reporter, and he wrote an article on Wirecard that you all should definitely check out. So let's go to that interview. How do you lose $2 billion? <laughs> yeah. Um, 1.9 billion euros. Oh, I stand corrected. <laughs> yeah, please, please be careful. With it. Um, it's basically you lose it by never having it. it. Turns out that these were supposed funds in an escrow account, two different banks in the Philippines, and they had already uh, had always said that this was like their their operating budget, and it was just the money was never there. That's the short answer. And so, so much of this case is centered around the CEO, Dr. Marcus Braun. Tell me a little bit about him and the early days of Wirecard. How did this guy come up to be in a position of power and what kind of person is he? He was, he's one of these sort of methodical, calm, I think he didn't mind being compared to Steve Jobs. Um, oh. You know, he's very, <laughs> seems very humorless. Um, I think he played violin or some kind of instrument pretty well when he was a kid. He's Austrian, which plays a role because the other guy that they're now looking, that Interpol is now looking for, his sort of protege is also Austrian. These two guys are from Vienna. And he came uh, to be part of Wirecard in a couple of years after the first iteration of this company was founded in 1999 um, because he was a consultant for KPMG and they were called in to help out with Wirecard in the early days. And then by 2001 or 2002, he was running the company. Got it. So when Dr. Marcus Braun came in, and, and I think you're talking about COO John Marsalek, is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, that guy. Okay. Well, we could probably do a, a whole series on him as well, I, I'd assume. Uh, He's amazing. And so in the early days, so it wasn't necessarily Dr. Braun that came in, and because Wirecard was a payment processor for pornography and gambling sites in the beginning. That was what he inherited when he came in. Is that is that fair? That's right. He inherited it, but I think, um, you know, and he went about sort of expanding, but that was uh, a core business in the early days. There's 
sort of <laughs> sort of interesting because I guess they sold these kind of dialers that were these sort of modems that you would use to dial up these porn sites and then you would pay the phone bill to these dialers so as not to get caught. I mean, it was pretty kind of dodgy stuff. It was the kind of stuff that most people and most, you know, payment services outfits um, of any kind of reputation wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And that's how they kind of got started. Know your audience. Know your audience. (laughs) For our audience, can we just break down how Wirecard's business model works in general? I can tell you that initially it was kind of a traditional, like, payment provider it basically had these clients um that would and they would do the payment and they would get some percentage of that payment this doesn't seem to be the thing that they got in trouble over they basically um that's of the version i mean we're still sort of sifting through this but that business didn't pay nearly as much as as they needed basically to expand so a lot of their business later on was kind of buying in other countries especially in asia these payment providers that had local licenses and then they would sort of get a part of their business because they owned they owned the business or part of their profits. And what they sort of did and what I guess led to these spectacular sort of yearly uh, margins was that they bought these little payment providers and then they could say, oh, look, you know, we bought this thing and it was undervalued, whatever. And now we're making this big business with it. And what seems to have happened is that that was just not actually true, that they had bought a whole bunch of things. And there were a couple of examples of things they bought that weren't that cheap that had been like, you know, there was some payment provider in India, I think, that was valued at like 50 million. And it was sort of bought and sold. And eventually Wirecard bought it for 250 million. And it was not really worth any of that. Um, but they could, in that way, sort of show their books and show that they were making sort of a nice revenue because they bought these apparently very valuable payment providers in other markets. So it's kind of like if I were going to start uh, a real estate scam, I buy like four crack houses and then I say, I own four properties in the New York City area. <laughs> and then I try to build like the next like World Trade Center or something based on the, the portfolio of those crack houses. Yeah, or maybe if you if you're going with that example, maybe you buy those those houses actually like in Yukon, in the Yukon, and somewhere where nobody can actually check on those houses, <laughs> right? And you're like, I've got property, you know, up north, and and that was the problem that people didn't actually check on on the things that they that they owned in Asia mostly. And please correct me if I'm wrong here. It wasn't just that they bought let's say our 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 crack house in some remote part of the world but it's that the payments that they were pushing through wirecard was inflating them if i did i read that correctly that they, if they said like hey we had a hundred dollars of transactions this month wirecard would say they had like a million dollars of transactions is that right yeah, I mean, to be honest, this is something that I myself just read in the reports, but that that's sort of the idea that they were inflating the value of what these guys were bringing in. And apparently there are these stories that they said, you know, whenever they had to have their year end report, they were like, oh, they did really well around Christmas time. And some of these, you know, in the Christmas and the holiday shopping season and some of these places uh, were in countries where you don't celebrate Christmas, you know, so it made actually no sense. Um, the yes. logic, but the amazing thing is how long they got away with it, and this is where I'm sort of a bit more expert. You know, it's just like the the sort of German thing: how long they were able to do this, and how many people invested in them and thought, "Well, this is like the next big thing," uh, and it was just really a house of cards, apparently. Yeah, the Christmas bonuses from Saudi Arabia really gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us, how did they get away with it? Because as far as I'm concerned, if you see, uh, if you're Ernst & Young, which we've covered Ernst & Young all the way back to when they were Ernst & Whitney, and I have my issues with them in general as an auditor, I'm not going to be hiring them for my business unless I'm going to be running a scam. But they, if you're an auditor, you go and you look at these books and you, what, don't dig in beyond just a line item that says this is how much this Indian transactor or this Indian payment processor uh, did business this month? You don't actually look one step further? Is that 
how they got away with it? This is, I think, what people are now trying to figure out. This is like what the whole thing is about now. Basically, in Germany, there's, they're looking at E and Y, Ernst and Young, um, and seeing like, why didn't you guys say anything? And there's a big thing in the German market. I'm actually not sure how they do it in, in the States, but um, they have like the auditors will be the same guys as the consultants. So Ernst and Young is making 80% of their business with Wirecard as the consultants and 20% as auditors. And a lot of people here are saying, well, that's one of the problems is how can you you know make money off, off consultancy and then turn around and be the guy to check. So uh, that's apparently what happened that E&Y just didn't check into those line items. And further, they didn't go into these accounts, these escrow accounts that held all this money, supposedly. You know, it would have taken a flight to the Philippines and, and to actually go to these banks um, to actually see, is there this, you know, 2 billion euros, 1.9 billion euros, is that actually real money, right? And they never did that, apparently. Billion here, a billion there. We actually allow, um, you know, like our cereal companies and our candy companies to regulate their own health claims. And that has led to yeah. some of the amazing <laughs> outcomes in health that you've seen in the United States in the past 20 years or so. One of the healthiest countries in the world, yeah. year and year yeah. out. That's us, America. Yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling um, that that they didn't they didn't check it. And apparently, the only reason um, it did start. I mean, I guess this is probably something you'll ask me about later, but this is like, how did it unravel? I mean, it's amazing that it kind of took, uh, you know, the force of a journalism, but also, you know, eventually there was another auditor that basically looked into these books and kind of said, you know, wait a minute, we're not getting all the information, KPMG. And then EY said, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. You know, we won't, you know, so it was, it was I mean, it was just, and this is, and this is like in terms of domestic politi politics here in Germany, this is the thing that really, you know, leaves a bad taste. It's just that these guys were so huge. These were the biggest, I mean, this was not just some small, unknown little, I don't know, mom and pop store. This was like the biggest German, you know, fintech hopeful it was bigger you know than the deutsche bank at some point in germany it was on the dax it was like you know really visible yeah and before we get to that i just want to just briefly talk about the escrow company because i think that's a kind of like a, a linchpin and kind of almost like a confusing part for people and and tell me if i've got this right because I, I don't know if i did but basically, why are cards over here and they are trying to buy the Asian company and they do it through an escrow company, like a, a third party. And then that third party goes and buys it. So then the money flows from the Asian payment processor to the escrow company and then to Wirecard. Is that how it went? Is that how they were able to like get around the licensing in those other countries? That's how I understand it. To, you know, you can tell I, I can sort of see how it ended but from what i understand you know that's how the escrow companies worked and that's how they were kind of able to shield their losses or you know the the lack of profit i guess so let's get to the dax and that's one of the things i really wanted to talk about as well the dax is kind of like it's the biggest 30 companies in germany it's kind of like our dow jones industrial is that fair yeah um it is and uh it's a big deal to be on the dax it's people are looking at these at these uh big 30 companies and people and especially private investors you know it's it's kind of a guarantor that these are things that are working right yeah these are these are tried and true companies and from what i understand uh, in German citizens, they, they have like a pension plan that every citizen gets to put their money into. Their money was automatically invested in the DAX or was it to Wirecard specifically? The ones that I know, I mean, it, it depends on what kind of pension plan you have. And certain, let's say, state governments will invest in certain, you know, businesses. But the big problem that I know of is that people were privately investing into Wirecard. So there were a lot of small time investors, you know, guys who worked at the, I don't know, there was one story of a, of a guy who was like a, a worker in one of the big car factories and didn't have much money and spent his life sort of um, not eating at the canteen because he didn't want to spend too much money. So instead he brought his sandwich, you know, uh, and after, after whatever, 30, 40 years, he invested all of his 
earnings into this into Wirecard because he said, well, it's you know it's DAX, it's one of the big ones. Everyone says it's 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 safe. Um, and he invested, you know, 70, 80,000 grand, whatever he had saved without telling his family. And then, and that's all completely gone, you know? And that's where the, there's sort of a financial oversight body whose job it is to look into these things. And they had at very forcefully sort of in the beginning when, when the Financial Times is starting to look into this and some other short sellers had written reports about this, they had really said, um, no, this is just done, you know, to bring down the stock and we have to protect, uh, we have to protect those guys. And they actually, I mean, this is maybe a question we're asking, but they actually uh, launched criminal investigations against the journalists who were doing this and, which is crazy, banned short selling for two months. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So tell me about like how these are the people that help either prop, prop it up and then take it down as well. So how, how did all of this kind of come together? This is part of the unraveling of Wirecard. This is part of the unraveling. But initially in 2019, when the Financial Times started reporting on this, you know, they actually stopped short selling, which is another just the reason I just mentioned it. It was another reason that a lot of these small investors said, hey, you know, if they're actually like limiting short selling, they're sort of we're being protected here, you know, by the by the state. Wow. And they essentially sort of suspected anyone of, you know, anyone who's saying a bad thing about, about Wirecard, they suspected them of somehow wanting to manipulate the markets. It was incredible. I mean, Germans are suspicious of short selling anyway. You know, it's not, it's kind of seen as this American thing and, and you know, done by sort of nefarious forces or, you know, oh, but to just us? actually ban it in that nefarious? way. Nefarious? <laughs> short selling in America? No, I mean, nefar <laughs> nefarious is, is surely the wrong word, but it's just seen as like slightly loose. Yeah. You know? It's just like, of course. you know, it's like short selling and making money off the misery of, of companies. Um but that was sort of the that was sort of the the attitude until they really couldn't because Ernst and Young, you know, wasn't releasing their yearly audit. They couldn't ignore it anymore at some point. So when things started to really unravel, how did Wirecard deny it? You know, when the FT stories are dropping, when your stories dropping, how did they actually come out? And this is like right before I guess Marcus Braun is arrested, obviously. But what were the kind of lines they used, and how did the public react? they always denied everything and they did it in this sort of very arrogant way. And I think it was also at some point it was really too big to fail. I think even if some people might've had doubts, there was so much money, um, so much, as I said, like not just state investment stuff, but like private small investment in there that they didn't want to just pull out. You know, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it too. It's every fraudster we cover has the same pattern of behavior when it comes to stuff like this. Deny until they're, you're absolutely gone, till you've disappeared, so you've been riding off into the sunset. Is there any other kind of red flags in your reporting that someone could have noticed in how Dr. Braun was conducting his business or how he was speaking that could have maybe tipped people off earlier to it? Or do you think everyone was just, as you said, it was too big to fail or everyone was just already along for the ride? I mean, I think there's in this a bigger question, which is, you know, the the Germans always see themselves as sort of like honest, very systematic sort of, you know, law abiding. And we've had a couple pretty big, uh, you know, financial and, and, and sort of like cheating scandals. I mean, think about VW and the diesel, you know, emissions scandals. And everybody just you know, as I said, well, we never expect the Germans to do this, you know, and I feel like there's a, there's a, the part that clearly the financial control mechanisms in this country aren't working very well, you know, for this to have happened. Um, I was talking to some American short sellers in reporting this, and he said, you know, I've just never had anyone go after me like this, you know, to like be investigated or even threatened with investigations, because you're looking into a company, and that not by the company itself, but by the guy's who are actually meant to be, you know, the control, the financial control guys. Um, and even on the days after Wirecard had completely folded, I would call and I would talk to their press, you know, their spokesperson. And there was just this complete arrogance, like, oh, no, well, that wasn't really our, you know, we weren't really supposed to look into it. There was just like, it was just amazing to them that this was happening. And there was no, the guy who ran it, only stepped down from this huge mess, the guy who ran the control thing only stepped down in January, like, seven months after this whole thing happened. 
the guy who's in charge of, of you know, controlling it. I mean, so it just goes to show you there's, I think there's a little bit of hubris and a little bit of like arrogance involved too. This also goes back a little bit further. You know, I've, I discovered uh, an older German fraud. It turns out the band uh, Kraftwerk was actually human beings that pretended to be computers. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kraftwerk. That's so good. <laughs> So what do you know about Jan uh, Marsalek? Am I saying his name correctly? Yeah, the Germans say Jan Marsalek is how they pronounce it. Jan Marsalek, okay. I mean, he was this, he was, I mean, again, I'm going by media reports, he's kind of disappeared, but he was this sort of nerd um, who started at Wirecard when he was extremely young in his early 20s. And he was sort of like the tech guy. And, you know, he... You know, I think he dropped out of high school. He was a very, very bright, but sort of this computer geek uh, type who then, you know, became very rich and apparently had all these sort of things going on while he was actually running um, the company and doing, as I said, a lot of the dirty work, especially he was also involved and he was responsible for the business in Asia and all this. I mean, he was like the the guy who was doing the wet work, basically, for Marcus Brown. But he was also, he was in cahoots with all kind of secret service guys, apparently some Russian uh, secret service, you know, some Austrian secret service. So he was sort of, while he was doing all this, he was living in this really swanky um, house, uh, like a mansion in downtown Munich. And you know, in this thing, they found all these drugs that he had sort of hoarded, like uppers and so forth, I guess, in case he was ever injured or something. So he was this like, guy who was like, seemingly living this sort of fantasy life of having all this money and just, you know, I don't know what every boy, I guess, dreams of like sort of being a spy while he was running this company uh, and committing fraud. Um, And he got out of there, you know, really quickly. So that's, you know, Brown, I just called actually the, the state's um, attorney's office this morning to make sure. So he's still in prison outside of Munich. And Masalek, nobody knows where he is. Um, they they think he's probably in Russia, um, in Moscow, but they don't know for sure. Um, when we were first writing this story in June, they said that he had gone to the Philippines to look at those banks. Um, and it was apparently a false, you know, a false trail that he somehow... <laughs> You know, he wasn't actually there, but yeah, this is, I mean, that guy is really, that, that'll make a great, you know, Hollywood film, I think, once they catch that guy and, and figure out what he's been up to. Yeah, I would watch that. I would watch a guy doing a bunch of pills with Austrian Secret Service. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so Braun got arrested, but Marcelek is still on the lam. Yeah, so Braun, right? Braun was arrested. I think initially Braun thought he could kind of, play himself as a victim. He actually lost a lot of money in this because he owned a lot of stock. Um, I mean, he, I, I guess at some point with the stock options, he would have been a billionaire, actually have more than a billion you know, euros. Um, and now, of course, that stock is worth nothing. And when you look at the final press conference they give where they say that they're, you know, basically they can't present this audit, he kind of makes it sound like they were the victim of a crime, you know, like that that somebody had done this. But then uh, in July, the state's attorney said, you know, well, it, it looked like, you know, you were you were asking for all these loans with all this money that you should have known you didn't have. And they actually he's now in prison. But f- in the first month or so after it happened, he was kind of there as a witness. And he kind of said that he would he would help, you know, he would collaborate and he was still you know living. He was like on bail or whatever it was, um, from five million euro bail but now he's actually in in prison in jail so they still technically exist but they're in insolvency proceedings or bankruptcy proceedings and they're being managed by the court so it's like in that weird they're in like purgatory as far as like finance goes they're they're in purgatory and they've like a lot of their employees have you know are, are, are have been laid off and so forth so it's kind of a shell of what it was i mean i'm guessing if you went to that building in munich you'd still have the sign up but it sounds to be it's always that's like the only thing that exists yeah. <laughs> still try to probably sell that asset for two billion dollars to make up for it <laughs> so did we miss anything what what's up is there anything that that we didn't cover that we should here i was just gonna say i think my final sort of thing i think the one thing that just can't be overstated is like how much this thing was the darling of small and large investors in Germany. And people got super excited because they were like, 
you know, Germany used to only have cars, like, the, you know, the economy is driven by cars and all stuff. And people are sort of excited, like, wow, we now actually have this modern, you know, fintech company that can compete with, you know, the big players in, in the States and other places. And I think that's why a lot of people wanted to see it go, because there was just a sense, you know, the States has all these big tech companies and Germany doesn't, doesn't, you know. So there was this sort of sense, well, we have our own European sort of big tech and it was just completely fraudulent and kind of built on on air, basically. Complete air. A lot of face face uh, face palm emojis on this one, right into your yeah. <laughs> into your this one. Well, Christopher, thank you so much. So now, Marcus Braun is in custody in Germany, awaiting trial. One point nine billion euros are gone. At its peak, Justin Wirecard was trading close to two hundred euros per share. When Dr. Braun was arrested, it was trading in the single digits. On June 25th, 2020, Wirecard filed for insolvency. Well, I guess you could say Wirecard was a bit of a wild card. You know, this is one of those stories that really doesn't get much traction in America because it's European, right? It doesn't have anything to do with it. Our money doesn't really get processed over there. I'm sure maybe some of our money did at some point. But it's the same move that all these other guys have made. It's kind of similar to Ruja Ignatova. Create a fake financial empire, all that lives on the web. Too bad it's fake. People put trust in this guy. The German people, the government put trust in this guy. And he defrauded everyone. I mean, I think it's a red flag. If you are rocking the black turtleneck and you use machine learning, artificial intelligence, and mathematics all in the same sentence repeatedly, red flag. Red fucking flag. And let me tell you something. I'll never forgive this man for betraying the trust of Angela Merkel. She is (laughs) my sweetie pie. I love her and respect her very much. The world's grandmother. We love you, Angela. Well, that's it for today's episode, everybody. Uh, I hope you enjoyed a a little international flair to the fraudsters' uh, repertoire today. Huge thanks to Emily Fusco, Marie Anderson, Hazel Bryan, Hannah Shaw, and to Christopher Schutze for joining us for this episode. This has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero Cool Media.